Well, aloha, everybody. Welcome to Healing Consciousness. I'm sitting in for April as she arrives today. And we are going to start off today with how we destroyed our capacity to love. This is Alan DeBoten from Zugel Zeitgeist. And let's just get started with that. And when April arrives, she'll pop in and tell you all about it. So thanks for tuning in. You are tuned in to KNKR LP 96.1 FM, Kohala. Let me uh, introduce our first speaker. He is a best-selling author whose books have been described as a philosophy of everyday's life. He's also the founder of the School of Life, which is a new vision for education to help people find fulfillment in their everyday. With that, please welcome Alain de Botton. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. So we've been hearing a lot about the common good, but what I want to focus on now is something that's at the heart of the common good, and that is love. Now, the way that we love nowadays is quite particular. It's historically particular. And even though it's quite early this morning, I want to start off by asking you a slightly intimate and um, risky question. How many of you in the room, even though you're married or perhaps in a long-term relationship, how many of you are nevertheless happy? <laughs> More or less. That is unbelievable. That is, a, that is a huge number, but it's, it's also striking because, you know, for most of human history, the idea that we would love the people that we were betrothed long-term to would have been seen as completely insane. You tolerated them at best. The idea that you would remain committed to them emotionally over a lifetime was insane. Um, it's really only in the last, say, 200 years, 250 years, that we have loved in a very particular way. By the way, we do love historically. There's a lovely quote from the French philosopher La Rochefoucauld. He says, there are some people who would never have heard of love if they hadn't heard there was such a thing. In other words, we take our cues from what love is from the outside. And for, say, 200, 250 years, we have believed in the romantic account of love. We all love as romantics. Now, what does it mean to love as a romantic. Let me sum up some of the ideas that you will have, I will have, because we're all romantics. Well, it begins like this. We believe that somewhere out there, there is a soulmate. You may not have met them already, but there is, in theory, a soulmate. When you meet this soulmate, you will never be lonely again. They will understand every part of you, and you every part of them. You will not need to have any secrets from them, nor they from you. Your souls will be in total communication, often without using words. Uh, you will find this soulmate through intuition. You'll be wandering the world, and suddenly, maybe at a masked ball or at a conference, you will have a very, very strong feeling, and you will be impelled towards them. And you won't even know why, and if you don't have that feeling, you won't feel fully human and you'll fake you had that feeling just in order to seem normal. You'll say, yes, I'm getting married because of that special uh, feeling. All this the romantics told us. Um, incidentally, the romantics, who were a bunch of poets and writers, mostly in continental Europe, um, one very important thing they believed that really, in order to love properly, it helps not to have a job because, you know, it takes a lot of time to love properly. So most of the leading romantics were unemployed and unemployable. And they spent a lot of time in nature, so going for a long walk is very conducive to romantic feelings of love, particularly beside waterfalls or sources of open water, cliff edges. Um, certain times of day are incredibly romantic, sort of five, six o'clock as the sun is going down 
and the long beams of the sun highlight the um, underside of the clouds, turning it a pinky, bluey hue, very romantic. The other thing about the romantics, they had a particular take on sex, ladies and gentlemen. People have been having sex since the beginning of time, and they've been falling in love since the beginning of time. What the romantics did was to fuse the two. They made sex into the ultimate expression of love. When you truly love someone, that love finds its expression in the act of sex. This single act turned adultery from a problem into a catastrophe. Because it basically meant that, well, you can work it out. Um, <laughs> interestingly, every single great novel of the 19th century, I was just discussing this with Margaret Atwood, she will nuance this point, but almost every great novel of the 19th century has adultery at its heart. Why? Because the act of transgressing your marriage vows now, now becomes an emotional problem rather than merely a legal problem, as it had been. Now, what I want to suggest to you is that the romantic way in which we love has destroyed our capacity to love. And if we want to become better lovers in the true sense, if we want to rediscover the true ambition of what love is, we are going to have to exit many romantic assumptions. Let me be a little critical of some of these romantic assumptions, though some of you in the room will feel romantically. Okay, the first romantic assumption is that you are a decent human being. Now, I don't know you, but you're not, right? You are a, you are a deeply corrupt, deeply troubled, emotionally complicated creature, and anyone who gets together with you is going to have a problem on their hands. Does anybody, is anybody, I, I don't know this about you personally, I know this about me and about all of human nature. That's just what the human animal is. Remember, the old uh, Christian tradition, I speak to you as a secular Jew, the old Christian tradition is all of us have been tainted by original sin. Now, this can sound very severe, especially in zeitgeist, but let's remember the concept of original sin is all of us are imperfect, we're warped, we're crooked, and therefore we need to go easy on each other. That's what love is. Love is the mutual recognition that what you encounter in another person is somebody else who's flawed, who's broken, who needs, in the deepest sense, charity. We forget this. We think we're great to meet. Is anybody here single and thinks that, apart from the fact they're single, they would be pretty easy to live with? Anybody think, anybody think they're easy to live with? Few people, yeah, you think you're easy? Okay, and few people, okay, come and see me afterwards, because I've, you know, again, there's some lessons to be learned here. No one is easy to live with. Now, what about the other person? Okay, so we see other people, and we think, oh, they're wonderful, they look wonderful. People look wonderful, right? We develop crushes everywhere. Again, I don't want to be mean, but no one that you get to know very well is normal. The only people we can think of as normal are people we don't yet know. Everybody else. <laughs> Everybody else is crazy, all right? Close up, everybody else is crazy, because we've all had complex histories, complex emotional lives, etc. We don't give this enough room. Two people on an early dinner date, the first question they should ask each other is, how are you crazy? How are you? I'm crazy like this. How are you crazy? Right? In other words, it's too, love is two crazies getting together. Not perfection, not angels, nothing like this, okay? This is what we should be ready uh, for. Uh, let's think about instinct, okay? So the romantics say you'll feel that special feeling. Don't go with what your parents say on an arranged marriage or what society says. Follow your instinct. It's a beautiful idea, but it brings with it a really big problem. See, where do instincts come from? You don't have to be a fully paid-up psychotherapist or believer in psychotherapy to believe in one thing. The way that we love as adults is, is sitting on top of the way we loved as children. The act of finding love as an adult is a refinding of love. We're following a pattern set in childhood. And the thing is that the kind of love we tasted in childhood wasn't merely a love geared towards 
kindness, generosity, and making us feel good. It was also a love bound up with varieties of suffering, um, lack of fulfillment, sadism, despair, etc. And what often happens as adults is that we're seeking to refine precisely those problems. Okay, and that explains why sometimes people set us up on a date. They say, you know, I know someone who's perfect for you. You go out on a date with them, and it's true. On paper, they look fantastic. They're great. They're, you know, all everything's great. Somehow, it doesn't click. And why doesn't it click? We maybe say to our friends, they're a little bit unsexy, or maybe they're, they're a bit boring. But what we mean by these cover words is unlikely to make me suffer in the way I need to suffer in order to feel that this love is real. In other words, our instincts lead us to some pretty strange choices. We have an instinct to repeat, and what we're repeating is not necessarily always the happy love of which we ostensibly uh, uh, dream. Let's think about communication in love. The terrible problem with love is that at the beginning of many relationships, we start off with the sense that our lover can understand us intuitively. Without saying too much, they seem to finish our sentences. They get what we mean, and it's a beautiful feeling in the early days of love. No sooner have we said, you know that feeling when they go, yeah, yeah, and we suddenly feel we have a soulmate. It's a disastrous idea, and it leads to a catastrophic outbreak of sulking. What is a sulk? A sulk is a distinct phenomenon within the constellation of love, whereby you believe that somebody who loves you should understand you, something that's important to you, and because they don't understand it, you won't tell them. Because if they, would, if they were your true lover, they would understand without you needing to say. Which is why when your lover slightly upsets you by something they did at a party, on the way back home, you've got your arms crossed like this, and they say, darling, is anything wrong? And you go, no, no, why? And they go, come on, just tell me. And you go, no, I'm fine, everything's fine. And then you go up to your apartment, and then you go into the bathroom, and you lock the bathroom door. And But this time, you know, your, your partner's knocking at the door. Hey, look, darling, well, what is it? What's going on? And you go, mm -mm -mm. And you don't want to say because you're a romantic, and you expect them to read through the bathroom panel into your soul to detect what is really going on inside you. That's what romanticism leads us to. It's very dangerous, okay? We, we, we need to... We, We, we need to explain. Another thing about secrets, okay? So secrets for the romantics are the enemy of love. When true, true lovers meet each other, they tell each other everything. And it's true in the early days of love. It's fantastic. You say everything. You say, do you know about this? Do you hate that person? There are, uh, you know, all adults in the room, sometimes a little bit about sex. Like, do you like that thing? And they go, yeah, yeah, I like that thing too. Wow, it's wonderful. So you're, you're bonding over these kind of secrets, slightly, you know, taboo things. And it's wonderful until the day when maybe you're in a bar, in a restaurant, and you go, you see that person over there? Imagine if, like, we told them about us, and then we got them to come home. You know, and you're kind of sketching a scenario, and you look at your lover, and they look really unhappy. They're really, just shocked, slightly horrified and, and kind of unhappy. And you suddenly realize, and it's a moment that happens for everybody, there's a fork in the road. One fork leads to total honesty, and the other leads to love. You choose love, because you don't want to... To, to be totally yourself with another human being is not a treat. Please don't be, be mistaken in that view. Um, let's think about education. Now, there's no, more, no less romantic-sounding term than education, but true love is about education. By the way, anything that sounds unromantic is, in fact, good for love. Chatting a lot about money before you get in involved, sounds pretty unromantic, great idea. Chatting about how you like to arrange a kitchen, that sounds very unromantic, brilliant, that's going to help you in your relationship. Honestly, watch out for it. Anytime someone says, that doesn't sound very romantic, it's almost always going to help your relationship. Now, 
one, one of the things that we prize ourselves for on because we're romantics is the belief that someone who really loves us, loves us for who we actually are and doesn't want to change us. People will say, oh, I met this most wonderful person, they really love me for who I really am. Alarm bell, alarm bell, okay? <laughs> no one should be loved for who they really are because we're trouble, right? So, and normally it goes like this. You've been with a partner for a few months and suddenly one morning you're a little bit of a hurry. They're in a hurry. They're eating their granola in a kind of, kind of loud and sort of, you know, masticating in a bovine way. And you turn to them and you go, darling, you know, I really love you, but this, this is eating. And they get terribly upset and they go, I thought you loved me. And you go, well, I do. And you go, well, why are you criticizing me for eating this way? Because I love you, so I need to tell you something. And they go, well, my mother, my mother never criticized me. My friends never criticized me. They don't care about you. Those who love us properly have to criticize us, okay? We need, we need to return to the ancient Greeks for Plato, what love really means is a process of education where two lovers, under the umbrella of kindness that love provides, undertake to educate each other to be the best version of themselves. Okay? That's true love. That's true kindness. It, they don't accept everything about the person. They try and guide towards goodness. So what we should be doing to our partner is turning the bedroom into a classroom. And you say to your partner, look, I went zeitgeist, and this guy was telling us about Plato, and I'm now going to tell you about your faults. And then you're going to tell me about my faults, and that's love. Sounds unromantic, it's a great idea, but we need to do it well. We need to do it with kindness. How often we try to deliver our lessons in love, furious, late at night, shouting at the other person, trying to get them to change, trying to get them to be another person. They've got their ears blocked, you're hysterical, nothing goes in. But True love is, is in a way, seeking the best for the other person, which may at times involve change. Okay, this is all a bit dark and a bit uh, um, somber for this time of day. Is there any hope? Of course there is. I believe that the hopes that we have of love are real and true and legitimate. What we simply need is scaffolding to reach them more reliably. Love is not merely a feeling, it is a skill, and we need to learn that skill. We need to go back to a school of love. Um, what, what would it mean to learn systematically uh, 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 about love? A few tips. One of them is learn to treat your partner as a child, right? Normally under three. Learn to look at your partner as an under three-year-old. The reason is that we know how to love children. We didn't always know how to love children, but nowadays most of us know how to love children because psychologists and theorists have helped us to learn how to love children. And I'll, I'll tell you why we love children, okay? When you come back from work and you're really stressed and you're giving your kid dinner, your little kid dinner, and you're preparing a, a chicken schnitzel and some broccoli, etc., and you give it to your kid and you say, there's dinner, darling, and they go, nah, and throw it on the floor and it goes everywhere. What do you say to the kid? Do you turn around and you go, I can't believe you just did that. Oh, my life is so hard and now this, I can't bear it. No, you don't. You say, okay, well, look, probably, you know, his day was hard, or, you know, she's got a tooth coming through, or she's tired, or something. You look for benevolent interpretations of people's less edifying behavior. That is love, a vital component of love. We do it with children naturally, we don't do it with adults. Why are adults difficult? For all the reasons three-year-olds are. They haven't eaten, they're tired, they need a little bit of rest, someone's treated them badly off stage. That's why people are difficult, okay? We, we know this with children, we don't apply it to, uh, uh, to kids. Another key thing to do when we're trying to love people is try to turn the object of your love into what I like to call a lovable idiot. Okay, most... Most of, the, most of the people we love, after you've been them with them for a little bit, you think, oh, they're such an idiot, right? They're such, you know, you know all about their flaws, and it's so easy to get fed up. But think of the great comics. Think of people like Larry David, or think of a character like David Brent, okay? These are people who are idiots, 
but they're lovable idiots. They teach us how you can love somebody with a lot of flaws and encase them in generosity. It's an enormous psychological progress when we move from loving somebody simply uh, in a harsh way and calling them an idiot to loving them under the guise of a lovable idiot. That is true love, and we need to learn to, to, to practice that. Secrets. Please maintain a few secrets. Don't, don't share everything about yourself. No one signed up to hear the whole unalloyed truth about who you are. It, it isn't fakery, it's politeness. And politeness belongs to love uh, as much as uh, uh, tenderness or, or directness does at, at a few points. If you're lonely in love, um, don't worry, that's fine, okay? If you're lonely with, say, only 30, 40% of your life, you've hit the jackpot. That is fantastic. Um, no one has ever promised us an end to loneliness. That's not what love uh, uh, really is. Um, uh, if I may say a little bit about uh, love and sex, right? Many people come to me and they say, look, is there an answer to this, you know? And I go, what? And they you know, love. Sex, what is it, right? And what they're really trying to say is like, how can you have like love, but also sex, right? And the good thing is, well, I've flown in from the UK, I live in the UK, the UK does many things badly, but one thing it does well is melancholy, right? It's, it's a very melancholy country. <laughs> and so let me give you a little bit. I know you guys here on this side of the world are not so into melancholy, but I have to teach you a melancholic message, okay? Which is, there's a choice to be made. Not all good things can belong together, right? You want to choose a life of sexual adventure, roaming, diversity, fantastic. You'll have lots of upsides and some downsides, right? You want to choose a life of safe monogamy, um, sticking with one person all your life, fine, but there'll be a price to pay, right? If you're having a monogamous lifestyle on a Saturday night, you'll be thinking that maybe in the big city out there, people in nightclubs will be having a great time. It's true, they will. You'll be missing out. You're missing out terribly. <laughs> Sorry to say, right? Um, and, and, and similarly, you know, when, you're, when you've been roaming around and, and having a more complex life, and your kids hate you and your, you know, your, your exes don't speak to you and it's all a bit of a mess, and you'll be thinking, well, maybe it would have been better as a, you know, as a monogamous person. Yes, that's true as well. Both sides, there is an irredeemable loss on both sides of the equation. We must see that there is not one answer which combines uh, all, uh, 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 all good things. Um, you know, in the age of Tinder, we're encouraged to swipe and look for a totally compatible person, okay? And we tend to imagine that things are wrong in our love lives because we haven't yet found this paragon we're all searching for, the, the compatible person. The person who loves golf just as much as we do and hates Chinese food just as much as we do, but loves this just as much and this not as much, etc., etc. And if we just twitch the algorithm, we will find the right person and we will be happy. That's not love, okay? That's not love, that's intolerance, okay? True love, true love, love that understands itself. Compatibility is an achievement of love. It's not a precondition. You don't start to love simply because everything's perfect. No, it is the work of love to try and find a, a degree of compatibility. Um, so let's try and look at when you will be ready for love, okay? Um, love is not something we're ready for from birth. We need to, to get the skills up to it. For a start, right, to be ready for love, you need to accept that you are a deeply flawed creature who will cause trouble in the lives of others. So you need to be extremely apologetic and extremely gentle um, towards anyone who comes towards you and offers you their love in return. The good thing is, we don't need to be perfect in order to enjoy love. Okay? What we simply need to do is have a good handle on our relative insanities and a capacity to explain these to others before we've caused them too much trouble um, and when they're still calm. Okay? So we simply need a capacity to explain where we are less than perfect. Okay? Um, we need to accept that the other person is also, as we are, going to be deeply damaged and imperfect in lots of ways. They are still eminently worthy of love. Indeed, they're worthy of love because they, like us, 
are flawed. It's because we're not perfect that we need to extend charity and generosity towards uh, uh, one another. Let's remember Jesus Christ. Again, I speak to you as a, as a secular Jew. I mean, don't, don't mistake me for somebody uh, who's, who's trying to foist religion on you, but Jesus, at one point, in, G in Jesus' uh, uh, philosophy, to truly love someone means that you could love anyone. Now, this, this sounds rather strange because we're so about finding the right person. But actually, you realize that once you learn the trick of love, you literally could love anyone. So, you know, a, a kind of Christian Tinder would get stuck on a certain person. You wouldn't, you'd have to go, you have to love that person, whatever. It's stuck, you can't swipe anymore. You have to get stuck with them because that's what it means to truly understand the spirit of love, that you can turn your imagination, you can see what's broken and incomplete in another person and complete it in your mind and extend a charity which is sometimes missing when we relate to others. And the intolerance that is present within the romantic philosophy of love is something that I think we need to, uh, to work on. So accept your imperfections, accept these others' imperfections, accept that you will need to speak. Right, enough, enough of the crossed hands, enough of saying, no, 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 you should understand me, right? Don't sulk anymore. Explain. You will have to use words, okay? And also learn that to be a true lover is to be a teacher. You will have to teach the other person, and you will also have to be a pupil. It's a rotating classroom. You will have to learn deep lessons about yourself, and you will have to teach profound lessons to another person without humiliation and without anger, and not late at night, not when the problem arises. Right? If you can start to do all of these, you will start to become that most remarkable of things, someone who knows how to love. It doesn't come naturally. We need to learn it, but once we do, we will be safer and true, generous citizens of the world. Thank you. Thank you. Did you know that there's a Teens Times 2 social for all teens 11 to 19 in school or out every Wednesday from 1.30 to 3.30 at the Kohala Artist Cooperative across from the Kapa'au Post Office. Come join us for art, food, fun, and friendship. I said I'll catch you if you fall. Aloha, this is Kato, and I'm inviting you to take the Rainbow Bridge to songs in the key of G, where real Gs take care of themselves, they hood, and they families. One show for the community, where I interview local artists who are successfully turning their art into business and business into success. We'll have music to dance to, interesting people to talk to, and we'll be taking calls from our listeners. We, we, we to be free. Songs in the key of G. Do you feel me? Got old. Tuesday nights at 7. Thank you and thank you for listening to Healing Consciousness. This is April Lee in the week of love. And I hope that you are planning a great Valentine for your sweetheart. And if you don't have a sweetheart, stay tuned to this show. We're going to talk about love. We're going to talk about partnerships. We're going to talk about infidelity and how to deal with it. And we're going to hopefully give you some guidance from the point of view of several aspects of that gemstone called truth. I do want to apologize last week. I said Sri Yukteswar in a very incorrect way, and I want to tell you that the teacher to Paramahansa Yogananda was Sri Yukteswar, and Sri Yukteswar's teacher is the very renowned in India, Master Babaji. 
and we've talked about him. He is a very powerful being who lives in the outer world where many of the ascended masters, even with the physical bodies, cannot handle our sadness, our pollution, and the density of our material world. If anyone can call me, I am looking for the information, and I have emailed the person that's on the website to, to email, but on the 16th, which is a Saturday following this Saturday, there is a big event celebrating the Ala Kahakai Trail, National Historic Trail, and I know you know that the trail goes from Apollo Point all the way down, evidently, to Honokaha Harbor. So that is the trail that you see running through the resorts and all along our Kohala coast. And we fought very hard to protect it when those subdivisions just below Kohala Estates and Kohala uh, by the Sea, Kohala Ranch went in, and we have done so. And thanks to Gail Byrne for all her work. I do hope that someone can call the studio. It is 808 884-5657. If you can tell us about this event, I think it's a very important event and uh, happens on the 16th, and I would love to share that on the air. Also, did you know the World Health Organization had comments about um, their dissatisfaction with vaccines? And that has come out and it's being banned by certain social media. I won't say exactly who, but you can imagine. And also that those uh, World Health Organization scientists in their comment section were very concerned that these vaccinations were unsafe. Now, here's what we have going on in our state legislature. We have mandatory five vaccinations which are going to be mandatory as of July this year, and that also includes the human papilloma virus for especially teenage uh, girls, but all seventh graders will be getting that vaccination as one of those five. The House committee passed that bill, and it still has to go through two more House committees and then the full Senate, and I'm uh, urging you to get online into the Capitol um, site uh, for the um, legislative um, uh, events going on right now with our government, and that would be capital.hawaii.gov. And could you go there, please, and comment if you have a viewpoint about the vaccinations. I'm just looking for the bill. I think I printed it out. I will get you that bill. I do believe it's House Bill 2114, and I know there are parents listening to this, and if you do not want mandatory, the only way that you can get and avoid your children being vaccinated is to get a minister or the doctor to sign a certain type of letter that lists certain things, and they can exempt your child. Otherwise, you parents don't have any control. So this is the issue. Please um, uh, get online, capital.hawaii.gov. Go to the... Um, Far, you have to get registered. That's very simple. You put an email in there, and then you list your passcode, and then you will type in the very far left menu, HB2114, and then it will let you either oppose it or support it. And of course, if you want the vaccinations, then you would say support. If you don't, uh, please uh, note the op opposition, and you can then uh, go further and give your testimony. Thank you so much for being a part of your... Um, your government, your what's ruling us, what's controlling our families. 
Today, we are talking about Let Me Count the Ways of Love. And we have um, a couple different masters to speak. I'm paraphrasing, of course, what they have brought through. And I thought uh, I would start with the, the being that I mentioned several times. His name is Master Email. He is uh, on the pink ray. So under Christ Jesus, uh, that uh, basically is the overseer of the ruby red ray. The ruby red ray being the ray of money, sex, and power. And so Master Email was the one that met the 12 scientists who went over in the early 1900s because they heard of these great beings who did not die, and they wanted to find them. They were there about a year, nothing happened, and they got in trouble. And uh, right about the time when something was going wrong with their, their trip, um, this old man came to the marking place, knew all about their troubles, and said he would help them if they, and they were to meet him there the next day. Well, the next day, of course, he was there, his same voice, same personality and countenance, but in an entirely youthful body. He is famous in the life and teachings of the masters of the Far East, a five-volume set. It's like walking and talking with these beings if you ever get to read them. And you can order them on any website that sells books. So anyway, here we have, um, we have a couple sexes and three sexes and four sexes. Maybe you can identify on this planet, but there are actually seven sexes. So you might expand your mind for a moment and think about the fact that many of the um, things that we do in the area of love would be, you know, kind of different on another planet where they have different physical bodies, different organs are developed in a different fashion. So the great brotherhood of light, and there are ascended females whose wisdom is printed in those five volumes, very inspiring lectures. And Mahatma email has clarified to us that when we want to understand you know, how pure love is demonstrated, we might consider our charitable work and our gifts and, and whether that is done for one charity or whether it's done for all charities. And um, this whole issue came up as an, a conference for these great beings who gathered actually from many solar systems researching this agreement and trying to establish the true and complete absolute power that love was. It is truly beyond all powers. But some of the ascended masters thought there might be a greater love and a spiritual power within that love, and they wanted to search for the clues to this greater truth. So they considered that a person who dedicated their whole life to a charity or an organization, no matter how great or humanitarian, to help others, this would be beyond 99.9% .9 of the population, basically what we're incapable of actually enacting. It was, however, in their opinion, that it could not be the type of love that was unconditional, absolute, and it was de uh, and dedicated to less than the whole of humanity because it's very difficult then if you would give about an amount of money to all charities, then you would not really be doing any practical good for any one of them. So the gift to, a, a smaller gift even, to one charity would be entirely more powerful 
than all of this energy that was given out and spread up over many, many charities. So much dialogue went on with this enclave. Love must be absolute, unconditional, and demonstrated as such, they thought. There was a feeling that neither side of the debate had demonstrated or discovered the entire truth, but they were on the verge of it. And the discovery was that it was not one's gift or service or work to one charity or all that was the issue, and neither was any great truth hidden in either path. It was finally agreed via deep meditation and work, which really we really in um, our public, you know, we couldn't really understand the level of work they can do as one one consciousness together. But they did create a, a, a force together, which is the greatest force that we learn about in these spiritual schools. And after all the aspects were carefully considered, through the unity of the group's realization that it was not the work, service, or money that was to be admired, but it was the unfoldment of perfect consciousness. There cannot be, on the other hand, the unfoldment without the work, service, and gifts along the way. There are individuals who can attain divine realization, i.e. self-unfoldment, via the path of constant meditation known as being on the path of meditation. Like many paths, it does not involve giving money or physical service to others. So through meditation alone, great realization may occur. The spiritual person in this type of development is not giving to unfold. They are unfolding, then giving. Many others are on a path of development, are giving to unfold often giving in order to feel greater self-worth, increased personal dignity, or a feeling of belief in their own goodness and kindness of their own nature. This type of giving should not be overly criticized. The Master brings this to our attention for our own self-examination and contemplation. The greatest love is the one that is absolute, complete, undemanding, unpossessive, unrestrictive, that is naturally given because one is interested in doing so. One picks one's path to enlightenment and sticks to it like the old saying, like one is on the razor's edge. One is dedicated to accomplishing one's highest development and often advances to need the aid of one's spiritual teacher. This necessary relationship is the meaning of the relationship to God in one's life, in practical life. God, guru, me, is in the form of many chants that I have learned, and it's an inward mantra to truth. As you might expect, it is wise to have many types of spiritual action within our lives, but we refer here to the one avenue that you choose, your soul chooses, to predominate over any other means. The path of love is one where you demonstrate love in action, in physical work, service, to people, organizations, beyond those in your family. There are paths to enlightenment known as the path of knowledge. There's paths that have dangers as well, as the student or the chela may slip from that razor-sharp path. In most paths of action, karma yoga, 
The dangers are worked out more easily than the path of meditation because one's personal action, learning, and effort is more easily analyzed and internally gauged. In meditation, there is a chance through delusion, desire, or through some action of, of material or maya that a loss of the real communication with the guru occurs. There is less contact with absolute truth. The dangers of the path of love for the Western mind and even for many Easterners is that it will not be centered in love in all that it entails, but primarily focused upon the needed work wherein personal, physical commitment, physical service is given. Tolerance on a complete understanding level is an example of a spiritual form of that love more than the physical. If you follow the path of love just on a physical work and service level, you might enter a convent or become active in a charitable organization. Then you are obliged to set forth a plan of action, a schedule to establish doing the actual work and service for others. And once the schedule is set forth, it's easier to not become ap apathetic or forgetful of your schedule. But it may be that you become apathetic or forgetful of the love one has chosen to demonstrate more than the physical level. Then the master goes into the truth that even though we humans see the physical world and our immediate surroundings of this life more than we can stretch to clearly see our greatest inner visions, our greatest imaginations and inner experiences and unfoldment possible, this may lead to a lack of the highest attainment possible. For the, really the ultimate truth, though, I have to tell you, is that all paths lead to the great goodness and when given the opportunity to do so, the inner relationship with you and your guardian angel via an intelligent self-analysis born of deep interest in knowing the spiritual teacher, knowing your own higher self, that has helped many, guide many, many lifetimes. You know, your spiritual teacher chose you. And that's so beautiful when you think about it, that your guardian angel wasn't, you didn't meet them in a spiritual life between your incarnations. They have experienced many of the same experiences and chose a very similar path as yours. So they understand your complexities. They understand your interest. They understand and are very patient because that is the same path that they have chosen and have ascended on. So this relationship, I cannot occur, encourage you more because if you're in a mateship relationship or a partnership relationship and you get confused and you start thinking like the next lecture you're going to hear that maybe you en will end up with, you know, getting attempted to be in, you know, having in some infidelity and stepping out of the marriage or out of the partnership and commitment, you might think, about tuning to your guardian angel before you make that move. From another great teacher, Count St. Germain, we find that he feels that the divine forces of the master God love flows. At, it, it flows always, always upon you and through you. It's never been separated from you. And if you picture the difference between a life alone and one dedicated to a cause or to a per person, you really realize that it's kind of an inconsistency to think that one could be demonstrating love and action 
for humanity without actually demonstrating that love on a level that is so full and complete to another person. So there are paths to enlightenment and there are paths that are naturally born within your nature to find and attract a mate. And I did meet my soulmate this lifetime. I would like to clear up very quickly the idea that soulmate is something like you can find several soulmates on this planet or whatever. That's absolutely an untruth. And this is why you have to study tested mediumship. When you are involving, this is not evolution. This is coming from God into the material matter where everything on that side, the Menahuni, the fairies, the, the gnomes, the sylphs, the, the angels, the divas of the mountain and the rivers and the rocks, they're all androgynous. They have both sexes within their being. So when you hit the material dense mineral level and you started evolving backwards, well, actually, you never, as a human form, ever really go through rock and all that. But as you came from this involution into the human manifestation of the physical forms, you separated into two. So when you meet your soulmate, you're meeting the other half of your soul. And let me tell you, you do not understand where they're coming from. They're a completely separate world from you, the opposite of everything you are, but you are magnetically attracted. Like when I met mine, I was 16, and it was like instant lightning. And it was for him too. Now, I'm not with that person. And because we did not get together and we did not pass our test correctly, we have 3,000 more years to wait. And we... We've once in a while, every couple, like 10 years or so, have a conversation. We kind of blame each other for why we didn't make it. <laughs> but you have another ideal to strive for, and that is harmony with your twin ray. This is a person much easier to get along with. Your twin ray, oh, by the way, your soulmate not, may not be on this planet, often is not. You're very lucky if your soulmate is on this planet. You have earned the dharma to be in the same sphere together. Because remember, your soulmate may be the same sex as you. One more reason to understand that all these sexualities, all these choices that people have are theirs to make for many good reasons. And that if your soulmate or your, uh, is your soulmate may be in the spiritual realms while you're manifested in your incarnation. So there are a whole bunch of reasons why you may not run into your soulmate. So don't hold that out as an absolute, I got to find. The other thing is, how are you going to find out if it is your soulmate? I mean, if you don't understand each other, but you're completely attracted to each other, that might be the basis for the first analysis. And you would go into deep, deep inner soul searching because you will have to do many things to delve into staying together. I've known many, many soulmates this, war, this experience, this lifetime, and only a couple have stayed together. I'm telling you, it is, it is the master within you that survives a soulmate relationship. So let me tell you about the tw soulmate, uh, twin ray. That is when you have, of your seven levels of consciousness, you have an alignment and affinity on four or more. So you go to a movie that's kind of emotional and you both react. You both really feel that same kind of feeling. 
or you love to dialogue and you find you have a, a, a intellectual uh, compatibility. You, you love to spar with one another. You stimulate each other mentally. But I would guarantee that if you want to be happy with your twin ray, you must make sure you have a physical affinity. In fact, I think you should have a physical affinity with no matter who you're with as a partner. So we're going to go into the next. Uh, this one is a little longer than we have to cut her off. Her name is Esther Perel, and she has millions of views regarding the emotional and these things. And we might end up having to finish a little of this next week, but tune in next week. We're going to stop for a PSA and promo and be right back with the subject about infidelity. And let me tell you, folks, I've survived it, and I got a gift because I did, and it wasn't that hard. Just realize, have you ever been in, uh, had infidelity in a past life? Guess what? You're getting your karma back, so live with it. Be strong. You know what? Everybody does it. From what she says, I'm shocked, but it's true. Okay, here we go. KNKR, Kohala's Community Radio, in cooperation with the FCC and the Emergency Alert System, wants to keep you informed in the event of an emergency. The FCC, in conjunction with FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, and the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's National Weather Service, implement the EAS to deliver important emergency information such as relevant alerts and weather information targeted to specific areas. No matter when an emergency may occur, KNKR is committed to providing the Kohala community with relevant weather and news and has established protocols to ensure broadcast capabilities so that you can stay informed about events affecting North Kohala at any time. In the event of a local or national emergency, tune into KNKR 96.1 FM for news and updates. Toes on the nose, coconuts. It's a balmy morning here at the 100-watt wave pool, where it feels like, like 110. 110. Midweek mornings with the Cosmic Cowgirls on KNKR LP 96.1 FM, Kohala. Why do we cheat? And why do happy people cheat? And when we say infidelity, what exactly do we mean? Is it a hookup, a love story, paid sex, a chat room, a massage with happy endings? Why do we think that men cheat out of boredom and fear of intimacy, but women cheat out of loneliness and hunger for intimacy. And is an affair always the end of a relationship? For the past 10 years, I have traveled the globe and worked extensively with hundreds of couples who have been shattered by infidelity. There is one simple act of transgression that can rob a couple from their relationship, their happiness, and their very identity, an affair. And yet, this extremely common act is so poorly understood. So this talk is for anyone who has ever loved. 
Adultery has existed since marriage was invented, and so too the taboo against it. In fact, infidelity has a tenacity that marriage can only envy. So much so that this is the only commandment that is repeated twice in the Bible. <laughs> once for doing it, and once just for thinking about it. <laughs> so how do we reconcile what is universally forbidden yet universally practiced? Now, throughout history, men practically had a license to cheat, with little consequence. And supported by a host of biological and evolutionary theories that justify their need to roam, so the double standard is as old as adultery itself. But who knows what's really going on under the sheets there, right? Because when it comes to sex, the pressure for men is to boast and to exaggerate, but the pressure for women is to hide, minimize, and deny. Which isn't surprising when you consider that there are still nine countries where women can be killed for straying. Now, monogamy used to be one person for life. Today, monogamy is one person at a time. <laughs> I mean, many of you probably have said, "I am monogamous in all my relationships." We used to marry and had sex for the first time, but now we marry and we stop having sex with others. The fact is that monogamy had nothing to do with love. Men relied on women's fidelity in order to know whose children these are and who gets the cows when I die. Now. Everyone wants to know what percentage of people cheat. I've been asked that question since I arrived at this conference. <laughs> It applies to you, but the definition of infidelity keeps on expanding: sexting, watching porn, staying secretly active on dating apps. So, because there is no universally agreed-upon definition of what even constitutes an infidelity. Estimates vary widely, from 26% to 75%. But on top of it, we are walking contradictions. So 95% of us will say that it is terribly wrong for our partner to lie about having an affair, but just about the same amount of us will say that that's exactly what we would do if we were having one. Now, I like this definition of an affair. It brings together the three key elements: a secretive relationship, which is the core structure of an affair, an emotional connection to one degree or another, and a sexual alchemy. And alchemy is the key word here, because the erotic frisson is such that the kiss that you only imagine giving. Can be as powerful and as enchanting as hours of actual lovemaking. As Marcel Proust said, it's our imagination that is responsible for love, not the other person. So it's never been easier to cheat, and it's never been more difficult to keep a secret, and never has infidelity exacted such a psychological toll. 
When marriage was an economic enterprise, infidelity threatened our economic security. But now that marriage is a romantic arrangement, infidelity threatens our emotional security. Ironically, we used to turn to adultery. That was the space where we sought pure love. But now that we seek love in marriage, adultery destroys it. Now there are three ways that I think infidelity hurts differently today. We have a romantic ideal, in which we turn to one person to fulfill an endless list of needs, to be my greatest lover, my best friend, the best parent, my trusted confidant, my emotional companion, my intellectual equal, and I am it. I'm chosen. I'm unique. I'm indispensable. I'm irreplaceable. I'm the one. And infidelity tells me I'm not. It is the ultimate betrayal. Infidelity shatters the grand ambition of love. But if throughout history, infidelity has always been painful, today it is often traumatic because it threatens our sense of self. So my patient Fernando, he's plagued. He goes on. I thought I knew my life. I thought I knew who you were, who we were as a couple, who I was. Now I question everything. Infidelity, a violation of trust, a crisis of identity. Can I ever trust you again? He asks. Can I ever trust anyone again? And this is also what my patient Heather. Is telling me when she's talking to me about her story with Nick, married, two kids. Nick just left on a business trip, and Heather is playing on his iPad with the boys when she sees a message appear on the screen: "Can't wait to see you." Strange, she thinks we just saw each other. And then another message: "Can't wait to hold you in my arms." And Heather realizes these are not for her. She also tells me that her father had affairs, but her mother, she found one little receipt in the pocket and a little bit of lipstick on the collar. Heather, she goes digging, and she finds hundreds of messages and photos exchanged and desires expressed. The vivid details of Nick's two-year affair unfold in front of her in real time. And it made me think: affairs in the digital age, a death by a thousand cuts. But then we have another paradox that we're dealing with these days. Because of this romantic ideal, we are relying on our partner's fidelity in a, with a unique fervor. But we also have never been more inclined to stray, and not because we have new desires today, but because we live in an era where we feel that we are entitled to pursue our desires. Because this is the culture where I deserve to be happy. And if we used to divorce because we were unhappy, today we divorce because we could be happier. And if divorce carried all the shame, today. Choosing to stay when you can leave is the new shame. So Heather, she can't talk to her friends because she's afraid that they will judge her for still loving Nick. And everywhere she turns, she gets the same advice: leave him, throw the dog on the curb. And if the situation was reversed, Nick would be in the same situation. Staying is the new shame. 
So if we can divorce, why do we still have affairs? Now, the typical assumption is that if someone cheats, either there's something wrong in your relationship or wrong with you. But millions of people can't all be pathological. The logic goes like this: If you have everything you need at home, then there is no need to go looking elsewhere. Assuming that there is such a thing as a perfect marriage that will inoculate us against wanderlust. But what if passion has a finite shelf life? What if there are things that even a good relationship can never provide? If even happy people cheat. What is it about? The vast majority of people that I actually work with are not at all chronic philanderers. They are often people who are deeply monogamous in their beliefs, and at least for their partner. But they find themselves in a conflict between their values and their behavior. They often are people who have actually been faithful for decades, but one day they cross a line. That they never thought they would cross, and at the risk of losing everything, but for a glimmer of what? Affairs are an act of betrayal, and they are also an expression of longing and loss. At the heart of an affair, you will often find a longing and a yearning for an emotional connection, for novelty, for freedom, for autonomy, for sexual intensity. A wish to recapture lost parts of ourselves, or an attempt to bring back vitality in the face of loss and tragedy. Now I'm thinking about another patient of mine, Priya, who is blissfully married, loves her husband, and would never want to hurt the man. But she also tells me that she's always done what was expected of her: good girl, good wife, good mother. Taking care of her immigrant parents, Priya, she fell for the arborist who removed the tree from her yard after Hurricane Sandy, and with his truck and his tattoos, he's quite the opposite of her. But at 47, Priya's affair is about the adolescence that she never had, and her story highlights for me that when we seek the gaze of another, it isn't always our partner. That we are turning away from, but the person that we have ourselves become. And it isn't so much that we're looking for another person, as much as we are looking for another self. Now, all over the world, there is one word that people who have affairs always tell me: they feel alive. And they often will tell me stories of recent losses, of a parent who died. And a friend that went too soon, and bad news at the doctor. Death and mortality often live in the shadow of an affair, because they raise these questions: Is this it? Is there more? Am I going on for another 25 years like this? Will I ever feel that thing again? And it has led me to think. That perhaps these questions are the ones that propel people to cross the line, and that some affairs are an attempt to beat back deadness. Thank you so much for listening to Healing Consciousness. 
We are glad that you are going to celebrate this lovely day of love, and we decree and affirm that the mate you want will be the one that you demonstrate. So be the mate you want your mate to be. And until next week, be pink and happy together.